Today, my guest is Danny Pellegrino. He is a writer, comedian, and content creator. Andy Cohen has coined him a certified Bravo superfan because he loves his housewives. <laughs> he hosts his podcast, Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, and wrote an instant New York Times bestseller. How do I unremember this? Unfortunately, true stories. It was a real delight to chat with him. I talked to him today about his podcast and his book and his viewpoint on reality TV. He even has me convinced to go and check it out. So enjoy this episode. Well, hi, Danny. Hello, Christy Carlson Romano. I'm so happy to meet you. I'm so excited. I feel like I have questions for you. I want to interview you. Do it. Can I ask you Please. some questions? Okay. Yes. Oh, my okay, gosh. Well, this is exciting. This is starting off great. I know. Well, first of all, okay, where do I even begin? I guess hmm. my main, the thing that I came here wanting to ask you about your experience on, and I know you've discussed Cadet Kelly, you've discussed even Steven, but I want to know, do you remember back in the day the Disney Channel used to do those music videos where they'd have all the Disney Channel stars singing a classic Disney song? I want to hear your experience about the Circle of Life shoot. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, Danny, and I have an entire YouTube video dedicated to talking about the Circle of Stars experience. Um, essentially, I got gypped on the wardrobe. Uh, it was quite sad. Um, I ended up with a weird, strange camo skirt with pockets um, on either side. It was very odd. And I've never since seen a camo skirt with pockets and it was like a, it was like it went actually about three quarters of the way down it wasn't even like a cute mini it was like under the knee or below the knee but how did the costuming work so did they bring out a rack and you all just got to pick from the no, rack or how did this how politics works. I, I need to know exactly uh, there was politics okay. in the outfits for circle of stars that is the tea that you're going to get from me danny pellegrino listen hillary always had the cutest looks because she loved loved being part of that fashion world. Like, I remember when we were working on Cadet Kelly with each other, she had like Teen Bop magazines. Like, we're talking like every single magazine, she would have it. And you know what? She was a genius because she needed to stay up on that stuff. So people were guiding her and she also just had a natural knack for fashion. Um, you know, Raven Simone, she knew exactly what her you know, her body was going to do with a certain kind of jumpsuit. Like she was rocking the best colors for her. Like I thought she looked gorgeous. Uh, Orlando, Orlando was there. I feel like I'm like in the retirement home and I'm like, and you were <laughs> love, there and he it. was there. I love it. And he's not, he's not around. Um, I mean, honestly, I think um, it was a, a very much a moment in time that nobody realized was going to be a moment in time. Um, so do they make, you know, do they, is it part of the contract then to say you have to do this thing or do they have to renegotiate and say, Hey, we're going to do this thing with special features for the Lion King DVD. How does that work? You know, I, I gotta be honest. I think that the, uh, there's a short and a long answer. Short answer is I feel like they paid us scale for our day of work, but we were more than likely obligated, not just through the culture of cross promotion and synergistic like publicity, you know, that you would want to kind of 
suckle at the Disney teat, you know, like you're like, oh, of course I'm going to do the wand thing. Of course I'm going to show up and do what they call interstitials because it was just a way to get your face out there outside of, you know, your acting and your little show that you're doing. So I think like, I think it's actually, I, we always looked at it like it was an opportunity to show a different side of ourselves. And so I think that we weren't asking for money to, to do something like that. Right. So the egos were very low um, on, on the set, but I do remember kind of interacting with Raven for the first time. Um, I showed her my boobs. Wait, what? why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why not really? I, I think that happened. Um, we don't need to go into detail. She knows, <laughs> you know, Raven, she knows, okay. you know what happened. Interesting. <laughs> you know, I had, I, I lived in Ohio. I grew up there. And when I was 18 or something, my friend had lived out here and I came and visited him and we were on the set of that. So Raven for a rehearsal, cause he was friends with, Maybe it was Orlando or someone. He was friends with somebody on That's a Raven. And I remember going there and Candace Cameron Bure was guest starring on it. So she, what? so I have this oh, you know why? picture with her. You know, that's amazing. I personally, I think, I think Candace is a Christmas queen and I will just always call her such. She's my arch nemesis, Christy. She's my. <laughs> listen, I get it. I get it. I get it. But she is Christmas queen. She's Candace Christmas, Christmas queen. Yeah. Um, but regardless, the reason why she was there was because the executive producers, who also were the same executive producers of Even Stevens, um, they, they, well, the showrunners, they were the showrunners for Full House. Okay. So they would source a lot of their, you know, throwback stars from Full House. And like, you know, we had Danica McKellar on Even Stevens. We shared a lot of the same talent pool because the person who was casting, even Steven's cast, was also casting That's So Raven. Interesting. You know, you mentioned Candace Cameron as a Christmas queen, and I'm a huge Hallmark movie junkie. I love this time of year. Oh, that's the, right. You are. I a huge. I just saw Christmas. on your stories. Ugh. I mean, can we just, with Christmas, I mean, I'm a holiday hoe. Me too. Me too. Me too. And honestly, like, that's the dream is to just, I would just want to be a Candace Cameron Bray doing Christmas movies over and over again. To me, that's the that's the dream of like just you work for the company and you get to just keep doing them year after year. And they shoot those things in like two weeks. Sometimes they're real quick in and out. Can I just air my grievance right now? Please. Yes. Hallmark, wake up and hire me already Why? for some Christmas movie. That was movie. my next question. Why have you not done a Hallmark Christmas movie? Have you? I mean, I have not done you would be a Hallmark Christmas movie. You would be what do you mean? perfect for it. because First of all, I want to... <laughs> you fit the bill so you. perfectly because it's really? it's the nostalgia. I mean, of course, people of, of my generation, of a lot of generations, we have such a nostalgia for you and we grew up loving you. And that's the kind of people that thrive on the Hallmark Channel. And so I keep saying that they need to start... They need to start investing in some of the new talent for the Hallmark Channel because I, Candace Cameron Bure, she's moved on to the GAC network. She's moved on, yeah. She's she does moved her own on. thing. But I need, I need us to get a Christy Carlson Romano Christmas movie in there. I need a Danielle Fischel from Boy Meets World in there. I love Danielle. I need. I love Danielle, and she's a great director too. Now, so wait, let's let's uncover the ex conspiracy. What's this? 
Let's move to him. He's asking me no. questions. <laughs> my producer is saying I have to stop having you ask me questions on my podcast, but we will finish this right now. And let me just tell you, can I just tell your producer, by the way, too, I know the listeners want to hear from Christy. They're not, they're, they want me to come in and ask the questions. So I'm here to Danny, ask. Danny, that's baloney. Danny, that's baloney. We need to talk about you being an amazing writer, but I think, I think that's what makes you a great writer is that you're interested in different worlds. But let me just finish this conspiracy yes, real please. quick, okay? So... Hallmark, let me talk to you. Me and Danny have to talk to you. He is your base and he loves me and I love you guys. Do you see what's happening here? The only hole is that I'm not casted in something. That's the only hole. Christy, I'll write the movie for you because that's my, <gasps> I, we'll make, Dang. we'll talk about this later, but yes, we'll make it Okay, happen. we're talking okay. offline. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So anyway, listen, I really appreciate you, you know, being so supportive and loving and I mean, being sort of like a young kid in Ohio, probably living for pop culture moments as we've come to understand about you. Um, I, I'm sure that Disney was very impactful. Yeah. I mean, for you. to me, you all lived in this separate world that I would put on the Disney channel and it was magical to me. And it wasn't just the Disney channel. It was all of television was a world into a, something that I, I didn't see around me in Ohio. And it seemed so glamorous and exciting. And I, I loved storytelling and I loved watching. Uh, I loved watching you all specifically on the Disney channel, but it just seemed, yeah, like a different world to me. I mean, I grew up in a small town outside of Cleveland. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, it was great. I mean, I had a, a very traditional upbringing and I have two older brothers and I uh, was closeted until I was in my early 20s. And I think that was challenging living in a small conservative town. But ultimately, everything worked out how it was supposed to. My family uh, came around and was really supportive. And I think having growing up with two older brothers, they were so protective of me. You know, they, they were Aww. just very, uh, very protective of me always. And so. I think um, I had a I, I have a very uh, great upbringing. I, I write a lot about my childhood and my family life in my book, which was out earlier this year. It's called How Do I Unremember This? And it was uh, it's right behind you. It's right behind for me. People watching. But <laughs> and it's a great ti it's a great title. Thank you. Thank you. It's sort of my I, I like to look at it as like my version of a David Sedaris book about. That's what I was saying. Oh, my gosh. I was literally just saying that to my producer. People are going to just roast me for interrupting you. I apologize. Go. No, no. But that's that was the goal, <laughs> at least. It was like to incorporate yes. and infuse all of the nostalgia, all of the pop culture that I love into silly stories about my family and, and growing up in Ohio. And so uh, I I hope I brought all that to the book. And I actually am I'm working on my next one now. And it's speaking of holidays. It's a holiday themed collection. So it's a lot of those family stories, but they're centered around the holidays. But I, I feel like I had a really great upbringing. I, I it was the hardest part of my upbringing was just those few years between high school and college where I was still finding myself and figuring out my sexuality and all of those kinds of things. That was the hard part. But after those years, it, I, that's so, so cheesy to say it got better, but it got better. No, it's okay. Let's, let's unpack that for a second. Like that whole concept of it gets better. Like where do you feel as, as you know, a part of the uh, you know, the LGBTQ plus community, like how, how do you feel? Is that something that's overused cliche or is it truthful? I think it's truthful in the, in the sense of it's all about embracing those things that make you, you. And that's why I think your life gets better. You know, I talked about all the pop culture that I loved as a kid and, 
And a lot of it I felt embarrassed to love. And that's why now I try to tell everyone, like, embrace what you love. As long as it's not hurting anyone, if you... I love when people get so passionate about uh, Christmas decorations. Or if they're so passionate about Disney original movies. Or if they're so passionate about Lord of the Rings. Whatever it is. Whatever that, that thing is that they get super geeked out about. I love when people are like that because... As a kid growing up, I remember being embarrassed about some of the movies that I loved. I, I was obsessed with the movie First Wives Club, and it came out in 96. I was around 10 years old or something. And a 10-year-old boy, it was like, they shouldn't love the movie First Wives Club. But I, I loved it. <laughs> Why not? I taped it on VHS off the TV. It's a as, cinematic masterpiece, yeah. okay? <laughs> it's so good. The three of them in the white outfits coming out of the the, the, the ball uh, hall, whatever that is. I mean, that's cinematic Christy, moment nothing right better. Those those pantsuits, yeah. that pantsuit that Diane Keaton was wearing, nothing better. Yes. Uh, but I, yeah, so I think it's all about growing older and being comfortable in your skin to really embrace those things that make you you, whether they be your your interests, your likes, or uh, just uh, the parts of you that you maybe try to stuff down or, or that you are ashamed. I just had a, on my podcast, I had this woman, Lake Bell, she's a director, and she just came out with this audiobook that's all about the voice. And it was really interesting to talk to her because it brought up all these feelings that I had as a kid about my voice and being even just so ashamed when I would answer the phone and somebody would think I was my mom or something like that. And as I've gotten older, I'm much more comfortable now in my voice. And yes, sometimes it might sound effeminate or it might, whatever. But I think it's just learning to embrace all those things that make you you is, is what getting better means. Does that make sense? I love everything that you just said. You are you are such a sharp mind and I love everything that you just said. So let's unpack it. So basically what I got from that is that there's so much magic in our childhoods, whether you're struggling with coming out or not, that is deferred and um, sort of pushed down. You know, I have a, a five and a three-year-old and I am probably almost kind of, a little bit too into selling them on the magic of life, like fairies. Right now I'm getting them like in the in, in our backyard, like a fairy garden. And then I just, uh. I spent like $200 on like little metal fairies that I'm going to put all around. And I'm buying like a, a whole playhouse and I'm going for it. I and And I think honestly, like while they're little, you know, there's a saying, let them be little. There is a magic to childhood that is taken from us. And quite oftentimes I feel like it's too soon. And in your case, I feel like it was a struggle to keep that. And your love of pop culture seems like that was, it's that connection to you for that source. And that magic is all about creativity and opening up the mind. And I think that's so important for developing creativity and and embracing that. I, I think keeping that childhood magic is is really important to the creative process. So you can learn 100%. how to you can learn how to open your mind to telling new stories or to uh, yeah I, I think if you talk to most artists whether they're a painter or a writer or whatever musician I think it's so important to keep that magic no matter what age you are so that your mind can be open to the creativity. Is there such a thing as too much magic though? Like I worry. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe on a case by case basis. I think you also have to be a realist in like understanding that. The world is also messy, and I think it's self-awareness. I, I think self-awareness is important. So, yes, I think magic is important, but also being self-aware enough to know that we're embracing the magic, and it's magic. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. It absolutely does. I love that. I think that uh, also too, like magical realism has always been really fascinating to me. Um, like we've seen like Stranger Things come out or um, even the new Ghostbusters that came out, to speak of nostalgia. And, and, and I loved what they did with those two, those two franchises because it leaned into what worked in the cinematic way and it took the best of both worlds and kind of made it new for people. Christy, where's the Cadet Kelly reboot? <laughs> well, you know what I want to do with the Cadet Kelly reboot. Have you read I, it? I read, Have you read I about read it? I read an interview that you did that is saying you had this idea for the Cadet Kelly reboot. Yes, I did. And I think it's I think it's completely fine and fair. People always have a um, sort of a queering of our narrative, right? Is that that's a I'm just making sure I'm using the term correctly. I think it's no, a I'm new not. term, but it's fine. I get we get what you mean. Oh, shoot. A new term. That no, I mean, it's, no, not it's a right. good new term. It's a good new term. <laughs> Wait, hold on a second, though. I went to Barnard. OK, <laughs> and in Barnard's class, we did this thing where we were we were tasked with with under we I read an essay I pro I'm gonna send it to you offline Wait. I promise and I did an essay about uh queer narratives and wicked and how people sort of read into wicked as two women who were in love with each other this is very similar to what's happening with fan fiction and cadet kelly mm. so if cadet kelly did come back and it was set in a modern military um i don't see why jennifer stone could not be married um to a woman and i don't see why that would be you know an issue i think disney's made great strides in terms of of um just normalizing things and i think they did a great job with lightyear um because i just don't think we need to I just think normalizing it's really great, but yeah, that's just and, me. So and also, I think it could be such a great, it would be so great to catch up with those characters in a unique angle. We need it. We exactly. need it. My friend Selena just dressed up as cadet Kev. for the two of you, her and her friend were you and uh, Hillary on the cover and they posted a picture. I'll, I'll send it to you. It was cute. Oh, if I, if I actually did send you my wicked essay, would you, would you read it? I would totally read it. I could talk about wicked for 25 minutes if you want to go there because they're doing the movie right now with Ariana Grande and Cynthia Riva, which I can't wait for. I think it's going to be brilliant, but I'm, yeah. I have a lot of feelings about how they're breaking it up into two movies because I don't think it needs to be broken up into two movies. I think they could get rid of that whole goat narrative and they, we could do one movie. Right. I agree. Yeah. Why are we I doing agree. two movies? Because they want to make more money. I know. Christy, what That's would be why. the what would be the <laughs> what would be the movie musical you would most want to do? I always have traditionally said Rent, but recently I went to City Center and I saw Parade. And if I had the ability to hit the notes that Carolee Carmelo hit in the original Parade, which I was in, I was the original Mary Fagan, I would most definitely want to play Lucille Frank, but. I know that might not be possible. I had nodular surgery on my cords when I was like 19. So I would play Mary Fagan's mom gladly. And so Parade was amazing. If you ever get a chance to see it, please see it. And have you heard music from I've this, heard a little music, play? but I've never seen it. But I've heard a little music. It was well, because it's not I, I mean, they don't have many productions of it. It's a very serious 
you know, Broadway musical. And so they had it at Cerritos here in LA and I went and saw it. But this was the first time I could actually fly from Texas to New York just to see it for the night. And I flew right back. So I feel that strongly about it as a piece of art. And um, I guess that would be, you know, something that I think I would love to do. That or the Cadet Kelly musical. We need to make both those things happen. I need to see them now, tomorrow. I mean, look, I think I think reboots are hard. I think that a lot of people will come to me and be like, hey, would you like to reboot this? Would you like to reboot that? And I think that it's, it is a very big decision from the creator's standpoint. And I wouldn't really want to be tasked with that kind of responsibility. <laughs> I think I'm starting to realize, though, that everything is going to be rebooted. So rather than fight it, I'm of the opinion of like, let's just try to make it the best it can be because they're going to keep doing these things. So let's just try to make them good. Yes. <laughs> my producer keeps saying back to Danny. <laughs> oh, my God. Believe me, the Danny, people tuning in are going to be excited that I'm asking you these questions. They want to hear about Cadet Kelly. Trust me. It's all his fault, you guys. And I just like getting to know him. And if he wants to ask me about me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him. See, you know. I, I'd interview other people. I'm just people. here to make friends. <laughs> I interview people on my show. you got to come on my show so I can ask you all these questions. But I'm so... Yeah, oh, I would love... I'm used to being the one to. asking the questions. I get that. I get that when you get into sort of like a cadence through a medium, like you're in your studio right now in Studio City. Um, and, you know, you've got your beautiful book behind you, which has been an instant... New York Times bestseller. How do you do it? Please tell me because I would like to write a book someday and I need to know what your process was because I know you ghost, you ghost wrote, wrote, ghost yeah. wrote <laughs> for two books prior to that. I'm sure the approach was way different. Totally. Yeah, I was a ghostwriter before, but I had always dreamed about doing this book, a collection of stories. Like I had mentioned earlier, a David Sedaris or my version of that, because that's what I like reading is essay collections or silly stories that you could pick up and read a chapter a night or or when you have time um, on the subway or wherever. And so I knew what I wanted to write. And I on my podcast, I talk to a lot of celebrities and I also recap reality TV and TV shows on my show. But oftentimes in between those recaps, I would tell a story about growing up in Ohio or a family story or, or something silly that happened to me in my life. And what I noticed is pre-COVID when I was going on tour, people were coming up to me and asking me about my mom's woodpecker at her house or, or these silly stories that I would tell on my show. And so I realized there that there was an audience for this. And and so I took it out to publishers and and most of the publishers, they didn't understand. And I would I would try to explain. I was like, no, I people come up to me at these live shows and I think there is an audience. And so ultimately I was able to sign with the Midwest publisher source books. And I think we were all surprised that the book did as well as it did. But I am so proud of it. And I think it's um, it's a fun, a fun book for people who love pop culture. There's so much 90s and early 2000s nostalgia thrown in there throughout the pages of these stories about mm -hmm. my family. And then there are also a couple chapters where I get into some heavier topics. I talk about my mental health. I also talk about grief in a chapter that is really centered around the loss of my grandmother and it was so fascinating to me to write those as well because I had sat, sat down to really write this collection of silly stories that would make people laugh. And then, uh, then these serious topics came up and I tried not to shy away from them and I tried to just kind of uh, dig a little deeper. And so I'm just as proud of those couple of chapters that are heavier as I am as the, uh, about the silly stories that 
um, that people seem to love from the book. So I'm really proud of it. And it came out earlier this year. And yeah, there's an audio book. So a lot of people listen to my podcast, listen yes. to the audio book, but uh, I'm proud of it. And it's I'm been hard at work on the next one. And I can't wait for people to get to read that one. Oh, man, am I a Danny fan? I mean, you have the most wonderful approach in terms of uh, injecting the book with absurd moments about do you want to tell everybody about the urn? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's so there's a story. <laughs> there's a story in the book. My mom had uh, we had a death in the family and my mom had bought the urn for a cousin from Amazon. And because the cousin wasn't able to didn't have the money or the funds to be able to get those stuff. Anyway, long story short, they ended up going with a different urn. And my mom had sent me uh, to return some things at Kohl's. We had to go pick some stuff up around the holiday season. And she sent me at the Kohl's in Ohio. There's an Amazon drop off center in the back where if people are unfamiliar, if you get something from Amazon, you can go and return it at the back of a Kohl's. <laughs> they will ship it back for you. And uh, so I had taken it, but I didn't know that I was returning an urn. So I was just walking through and I got to the back of the coals and I was had this urn. Um, and ultimately, uh, I could not return the urn. So I had to do the rest of my shopping trip with an urn um, at an Ohio Coles. And so there's a little more to it in the book. There's a little more to it in the book. But I don't recommend doing any holiday shopping with an urn in hand because people give you strange <laughs> looks and, and <laughs> well, yeah I mean do you feel like you got a lot of strange looks growing up in general like yeah I think like I always just look at the wor world in a silly way I think everything's ridiculous and insane and the truth is always stranger than fiction and so I I've always just kind of observed it around me and my parents have good sense of humor. My mom has like the best laugh in the world and she she has a way of looking at things and, and finding the humor and everything. And so and I I tend to like stuff that's a little dark or cringy in terms of my sensibilities for things that I laugh at, like The Office or I love this show called The Comeback, which was on HBO with Lisa Kudrow. And it's some people watch it. But some people can't watch it, though. Do you like The Comeback? Uh, it strikes a little close to home <laughs> yeah. for me, but yes. <laughs> Some people, I recommend it to people, and I often hear people say, I couldn't watch, I couldn't get through the first couple of episodes because it's very cringy and it's 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 yeah. dark humor. But It's intended for it to be, yes. Yes, mm -hmm. and I love that. I think, I, I love that. It's curb, you like Curb Your Enthusiasm. Love it. But no, but this is tracking. This is tracking in, in the David Sedaris. Um, uh, I, I remember Sedaris's books, and, and, I com and I was literally saying this to my producer before we hopped on. I said, yeah, so he is kind of like David Sedaris. She's like, oh, yeah. Thank you. So you're doing it. You're Thank on you. brand, my love. Thank and you. So back to you know, with your dark sense of humor <laughs> at the same time, you have come forward in this book um, and just in general about, you know, your mental health and your struggles and stuff like this. What made you decide to start talking about that? On my show, on my podcast, I had talked about a period of my life where I had severe depression. It was about a month of my life where I couldn't get out of bed. I, I stayed close to what I called my, my safety zone, which was my apartment at the time. It was hard for me to literally do anything. Just getting in the shower was like a huge accomplishment. And it, it lasted about 30 days. And I had shared the story on my show. And I heard from so many people that reached out and said they had similar experiences. I think with mental health, everyone has different experiences. 
but there are a lot of touchstones. And one of the aspects of my own experience that I thought I was alone in was this, and it goes back to Disney actually, because I was uh, in this. It all re- goes back it to Disney. Does. I was in this really heavy place for about <laughs> a month, and towards the end of the month, I started doing all these things that I thought would help me get out of it. I tried to work out more. I tried to journal, meditate, do all those things that people say to do when you're in a funk or a depression. And towards the end, my boyfriend was like, oh, uh, let's go to Disneyland here in California, which in retrospect, maybe isn't the right thing to do when you're in that kind of headspace. But on the way to Disney is what I write in the book as my low point, because I was driving in the passenger seat of my boyfriend's car and I was looking out the window on the freeway and I was literally imagining the cars going off the freeway and my brain was morphing these things and I was having these hallucinations that I was always so fearful of sharing with anyone because I thought they made me sound crazy and I was embarrassed and what did that mean and I just I was ashamed of it and I had shared it one time and I had heard from other people who had of course different but similar experiences with hallucinations so Long story short, that made me feel comfortable going a little deeper in the book and explaining my situation with mental health and my experience with anxiety and depression. And that was what I consider the low point. I remember driving to Disney and I I couldn't get a grip on my thoughts. And I, one of the things I say about depression is that it can it can convince you of anything. It's such a powerful thing in your mind. Oh. And I like to think of it as like a separate entity in your, in your brain. And it can convince you that the best people in your life are the worst people. It could convince you that you're not good enough. It could convince you that you're not smart enough, pretty enough, whatever. And it's so incredibly powerful. And I think people who have experienced uh, anxiety and depression, they understand that. But there's a lot of people who go through life. I have two older brothers. My middle brother, he has the most simple, happy life, and and God bless him for it. But So it's harder for him to understand these things. And so I think sharing our stories, it's not only important for us to feel less alone. And I heard from so many people who had these experiences who said, I just reading about your experience made me feel less alone. And then that makes me feel less alone. But then I also think there's a benefit in teaching others who maybe have never had any mental health issues because they can understand it a little bit better and hopefully have more empathy for others who are going through a tough time. Oh, that's God damn, you're such a nice person. I love you. Thank you. I love you, too. I've loved you for years, though, watching you on the Disney Channel. We're we're making this official. (laughs) I love Danny. Oh, man. But I think it's important in whatever your art is, is to embrace all the sides of it. And whatever the emotion is, I think... Sometimes people feel maybe they're a comedian and they can only be funny. But I always like the artists or the people who present work that is well-rounded and that has they're not afraid of those those moments of vulnerability. And I always talk about Rosie O'Donnell on my show because I grew up loving her talk shows like my that was my North Star. But I remember watching her interview. She was never afraid to if she had an emotion of sadness or anger or whatever it was, she wasn't afraid of that. And so I always try to go back to that ideal uh in whatever my work is of like if if you're going there just go th- let yourself go there and i think you find you connect with people on that yeah um i uh, depression really does suck and it and it can feel very much like an all powerful demon living in your brain um i uh Did you get depressed at all while you were tackling this memoir? No, no. Actually, it was so therapeutic, actually. The only thing that was hard was 
I wrote this chapter about the loss of my grandmother. And the chapter started about this bad date that I had. It was a a guy took me to a, a fast food restaurant on a date. And it was sort of a disastrous date. And what I realized was that I this the date was actually so disastrous because of the emotion I was going through with the loss of my grandmother because she had passed and I never had really dealt with her passing. And uh, I had moved to Los Angeles right before she got sick. So my family all had time to really adjust. And her and I were very close growing up. She was a, a huge presence in my life. And so she had gotten sick right before I moved. And then then she passed away. And I felt like my family, in a weird way, had this opportunity to adjust to her losing her because they saw her in the hospital and it was a couple months of of her decline and and I never properly dealt with that grief and so I realized through the telling of this bad date story all this unprocessed grief that I had with my grandmother and and I had I had written her eulogy but then so I, I had gone home for the funeral and then flew back to Ohio but I never really did the process of grieving because my life was just in this place where I, my whole life was changing. And, and I think that dug up a lot of grief and it ultimately became the thing I think I'm most proud of with the book, because I thought so much about grief and how we all handle it. And it's so fascinating to me how different religions and different people have these ways of, of doing things that are traditional and you are supposed to go to the funeral and then you move on right away, or then you go back to work or you have this many days off work and then you have to go back and you're just expected to be moved on. But it's so much messier than that. And I think there's, depending on your relationship with the people that you lose, it can be longer, shorter. There's no, there's no blueprint for dealing with grief. And I find it fascinating that we almost try to follow a blueprint with grief in this country. And, and I think it's so much messier. So you think that's a uniquely American thing or like how do other cultures, what's the best presentation internationally of a culture that understands how to deal with grief that you've found? You know, that's a great question. I, I don't honestly know the answer and I wonder, maybe you have some thoughts, but I, I only know, I only say in this country because that's what I know and I'm not sure with other cultures. I just know the cultures within the U.S. It's depending on your religion. I grew up Catholic and we have our church service for the funeral. And then, yeah, we, so do, I'm Catholic. I was Catholic, too. Yeah. And then, right. I'm you Catholic. have we would do a little uh, gathering afterwards. Okay. Right. A little yeah. food thing. Open, a little open, a uh, little open coffin, a little praying. And then you have your a lot of awkwardness. You have your uh, appetizers afterwards, and then you're then it's done, and you're all just supposed to wash your hands of the whole thing. Yeah, and it's strange. And then I guess you're also, from what I was told, some of the more I guess modern Catholic churches um, are discouraging people wearing black at funerals, and they're like, you should wear white because you know these people have returned to God or something. So. I, I, it's a very complex thing. How would you want to go out? Well, <laughs> you want to get dark? Let's get dark. Well, no, I, How would you want to be buried? How's your perfect church I think I funeral? would like all of my organs to go to anyone that could use them. You know, use whatever you can. And then I don't need to be buried. I'm not... I would like the idea of like a party, a celebration instead of a maudlin uh, coming together after I pass. And I, I think that would be great. 
And I think a lot of people feel that way, but it goes back to this sort of blueprint that we've all convinced ourselves that we have to do. And I think so many people, instead of doing a celebration of life, end up doing the maudlin church service, at least within the Catholic uh, culture that I was raised in. And I, I think more people would would like the opposite of that, but because we're so accustomed to a certain way. What do you think? What, what right. would you want? Uh, oh, here he goes asking me questions. It's not my fault, guys. Um, I was raised Catholic in Connecticut, Italian family. Apparently you, my mom's from Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh um, and so I feel like we're speaking the same language in a lot of ways um, with the family and um, with also that kind of like that middle class um, sort of approach to the American dream, um, the very Chevy Chase kind of like, so let's put it this way, like my parents were very much like the 80s family that bought a big mansion um, on credit and then never finished it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I had so many friends like me um, where I'm from in Connecticut that like it was that yuppie mentality, but you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird place to be. Yeah, it's a weird place to be as a millennial who comes from like a middle class who declined, I feel like, over time with less income potential that my parents had because they were sort of independent. Um, my dad was like an entrepreneur, never kept one job for a long time. And then my mom was my momager. So, you know, we, we lived in constant fear of a lot of things, not just losing the house, but also I think fearful of death, fearful of, of other people, the world outside. And so I may not be accustomed to grief because I think I disassociated a lot throughout my childhood, especially while being a child actor. Um, but I do think that um, I have a blueprint of fear. And what I think I'm currently working on is not of breaking this as a generational trauma and not giving it to my, my, my daughters right now um, before they start asking me about death. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Cause like by eight years old, I feel like some of that stuff comes up. Um, I even was discouraging my kids from even saying the word dead and death. And just recently they started saying it and I'm like, what do you think? I mean, do you think I should allow them to kind of just say it? Should I normalize that? I was just going to ask or? because I, I don't know. I don't have kids. And I, I wonder when it is that you teach people about that. The only kind of reference point I have, and I hadn't lost anyone super close to me until my grandmother uh, that I talked about. But I remember my favorite book still to this day, my favorite book of all time is Bridge to Terabithia. And it deals with death in kids. And I think that nowadays sometimes art is so sanitized and even the things that are are made for uh, multi-generations or made for all audiences I think are sanitized mm -hmm. more than the things that I remember growing up that were still considered family friendly I mean I look at the Marvel movies which I love them and I'm not uh, no shade to them but even if you watch a Marvel movie the characters don't really die they you know, they're blipped and then they come back and then they, you know, and it's, I, I worry. That, Keep making money. I know it's a smart <laughs> business move for sure. And I like the, I like seeing the characters come back. It's almost like a soap opera. You get to see them come back, but I worry that maybe it's, it's, 
it's we're we're not maybe teaching the youths or the kids about this thing, and it's going to make them have a harder time dealing with grief when it does present itself. Because it always this is, sounds so dark, but it does always present itself. There's a finite beginning and a finite end to life, yeah. and 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 I think I think we could normalize that, but I do think we're stuck in a system of people sort of denying that and living in fear. And I mean, those executives are living in fear of, of not creating, you know, a franchise that could come back and be resurrected. Everything is like, um, necessary. Like I remember somebody, (laughs) somebody at Disney had told me like, look, like we're really not taking on any new projects. We're not rebooting anything maybe from your past. We just want to know what the toy's going to look like. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, we want to know what the toy's going to look like if you're going to pitch it. You have to keep that in mind. And I and I respect that. Um, but uh, I agree with you. I don't know if that's serving the greater calling for art. And I think that that's kids true. can handle more than we think they can. Going back to that book, Bridget Arabithia, I, I didn't have a problem. I feel like it taught me a, a lot about loss. And it didn't it didn't harm me in any way. I think it was actually very beneficial for me to read that book as a kid. And I I think kids in general can handle a little bit more darkness than we think they can. Yeah. Look at Hocus Pocus, you know, like from the first one and my daughters have recently really gotten into nightmare before Christmas. And, uh, we're, so yeah, we're dealing with that. We're dealing with a lot of stuff. And And also in terms of this, Oh, sorry, honey. I I was just going to say, I'm sorry for interrupting. I I wonder too, if some of these movies, like you mentioned, Hocus Pocus or Nightmare Before Christmas would be made today. I was just talking to a friend about this movie, Batman Returns from 1992. And it's so incredibly dark. And I loved it as a kid and I rewatched it and it's, there's some stuff in there that I don't think it would ever be made, particularly in the realm of a superhero movie. Movie that's for all audiences. That movie had McDonald's toys. And yet, if you watch it, there's just some craziness in there. So, I, and I don't know the answer if, if we should be shielding kids or not. I, I'm not a parent, but I always think that. I don't either. And I am yeah. a parent. Do you see what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Like, I don't think there's an easy answer. I think it's case by case. Um, and also, in terms of the sanitization element, is this why you like, like, Bravo TV. Oh, yeah. Well, I do love Bravo TV. And I think there's something about it. I'm not dramatic in my real life. I feel like I'm the opposite. I I turn away from people that I feel like might be bringing chaos into my life because I get it all from my screen on Bravo. I feel like I get all that out of me when I watch The Real Housewives. And so there's something soothing about it for me. And I know a lot of people feel the exact opposite when they watch The Real Housewives. They feel like it's too chaotic or it's too much fighting or whatever. And I feel soothed by it. But I also think, and this is something I I tell people a lot, and it's not a perfect show. There's obviously problems with the franchise of The Real Housewives. But there's also a lot of benefits that I don't think people often give it credit for because it's one of the few places on television where you see women over 50, over 60, dealing with death, divorce, raising kids, starting businesses, uh, owning their sexuality. Uh, it, they're, those pick up, the things that get picked up in the media are often the table flips and the fights. And of course, that's what we, we also love that. And some of that is problematic. I'm not saying it's a perfect show. But unfortunately, we still in 2022 do not have a lot of scripted content where I could see a 65 year old woman 
talking about the divorce of her husband or uh, Kara Radswell is someone on The Real Houses of New York. She went to London to pick up her her uh, deceased husband's ashes and she went with another housewife who had also lost a husband and they have this beautiful episode where they're connecting on losing their husbands after all these years and starting over and it's it's beautiful but that's not what always gets picked up and not to say that uh, every episode is like that of course it's not all like that but i think that's something that's often disregarded when it comes to the real housewives franchise that i tend to love about it and i prefer when the housewives are a little bit older sometimes they will cast very young women which I'll watch, but I think it's so fascinating to be able to, it's a privilege to get to watch some of these aging women uh, that we don't get to see elsewhere on TV, unfortunately. It's like First Wives Club all over again for you. Yeah, and I don't know what it is, and Christy, it's so funny you say that. I was just thinking that recently of like why, I've always just been a, I've always loved the Golden Girls, and I've always loved watching older women on TV even from a very young huh. age, that's just what I was attracted to. And I don't know what that means about me, but that's what I'm into. I, I love that. I love that. A lot of people love Golden Girls. And it, to me, it's just so interesting. And they're the stories we don't get to see as much. I mean, we talked about superhero movies, and I feel like we've seen a lot of those stories play out in the in the way that they always do a million times. And so I'm so fascinating to see. I, I was just telling a friend about that Batman Returns movie. Michelle Pfeiffer was so brilliant in that as Catwoman. And so good. I want to see uh, Michael Keaton has has filmed some stuff for an upcoming movie as Batman. And I want to see the Michelle Pfeiffer character now coming back. I want That's the character. I want to see well, what they are up to. Yeah. It's like Top Gun when they replaced the hot chick from the first you know, movie because, you know, she's older and overweight. And I mean, it was a great movie, epic movie. But yeah, I mean, that was a little bit unrealistic and convenient. And also bullshit because they come out and say, oh, well, we just didn't want, we couldn't bring back every character. But it's like, okay, you you did have a, a beautiful Val Kilmer scene with Tom Cruise in the they Top did. Gun. I thought it was the best yeah. scene of the whole movie. And Tom Cruise was amazing was in it. But Kelly McGillis, that she's just discarded. She was the female lead. Not even her, but Meg Ryan, who's, I mean, I worship Meg Ryan, so I could go on a whole rant about that, and I won't, I'll spare you of that. But Meg Ryan's character in the original Top Gun is the mother of Miles Teller, and they still left her character out, too. And I just think, like, you could say it was a creative. It's revisionist history. We can all pretend, like, <laughs> everyone can buy the bag of bullshit that it was just a... a the decision of the creatives to not want to tell those stories, but we all can read between the lines and see that it's something that happens time and time again. I mentioned Michael Keaton coming back as Batman for the next flash movie, but it's like, we we're not getting Michelle Pfeiffer coming back. Like these are things that are happening over and over. And we're all just kind of saying, Oh, well it's a creative reason. Let's stop kidding ourselves. I, yeah, I mean, it's not even like internalized misogyny. I think that Tom Cruise was 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 very aware that this could be a, a criticism and just didn't care. He's like, uh, whatever, I'm I'm going to play to people's nostalgia. I'm going to pander to a certain degree, but I'm going to erase the things that don't work for my franchise. Whatever. Moving on. Yeah. This is so. And by the way, I have two questions for you or one. Andy Cohen has coined you a certified Bravo super fan. Um, but who is your favorite 
Real Housewife. Okay, so this changes literally every five minutes. Currently, it's a woman on The Real Housewives of Potomac called Karen Huger. She's the grand dame of Potomac. She's my current favorite. I'm wearing a uh, Rinna lipstick <sighs> right now. Just so oh my know. God, how is it? It's amazing. Okay, wait, do you watch any of the Housewives? All I've seen is that Rinna is apparently the bully of Hollywood and Kathy Hilton has had enough. And I've seen that on TikTok. And I don't know what to think. Yeah, there's, I mean, <laughs> it's a lot. The Beverly Hills season just wrapped. There was a lot going on. And uh, Lisa Rinna and Kathy Hilton had this epic feud that we still don't really have a ton of answers for. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions about what happened on this cast trip to Aspen. But uh, it's fascinating stuff. Chrissy, you need to dive in. But, uh, Beverly Hills uh, is fun. I know. I also need to, di- I need to dive into Drag Race. Like, I haven't done that. And I've been, I've been told that I need to do that as well. There's so um, much good TV. But, but there is. There's really, I, 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 I you know... Transparently, like I, I, I have stayed away from reality, but I feel like you have given me a new um, perspective on it that because of our backgrounds, um, I feel like I want to give it a shot. And so I'll let you know. Please, I know. And it's not perfect, <laughs> but I think it's it's riveting television. You mentioned Drag Race and the artistry on Drag Race. I think particularly in those earlier seasons, it's and I, I tend to gravitate towards the earlier seasons because they do a lot of their own sewing and in the making of their costumes. Yeah. But I think there's so much artistry on display. It's amazing to watch just from that. I mean, I've always been obsessed with RuPaul. Like, I really have. Wait, who did you? RuPaul was one of my... This might be a silly question, but who... I'm sure you had crazy guest stars on Even Stevens. I'm running through my head. Did you guys have weird guest stars? I I did. I had, I had Phyllis Diller... Ugh. Um, we had, um, Richard Kind, um, we had, um, oh my gosh, so many amazing people. What was Phyllis Um, like? I mean, Phyllis Diller. So she was in, yeah, Phyllis Diller passed some years ago, but Phyllis Diller was a great comedian, um, with this crazy hair and she had this crazy way of bugging out her eyes and accentuating the punchline, a very vaudevillian lady. And they gifted me a storyline with her as like my pole vaulting coach and how, you know, my character Ren would always want to be the perfect at everything. And she had to pass this one thing. Anyway, she was a great doll on set. And and I was blessed to have that comedic. um, I was very blessed to have a comedic, uh, you know, time with her. I think when you're young and impressionable as an actor, those kinds of interactions really do make a difference for you. So when the writers can give you that, like, that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, look, wh- do you want to see a movie of your book or books? Yeah, I'm working on that. I'm working on a, a TV version of it uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. I have a, we're trying to get it moving. So Great, hopefully, maybe because next it time just, we talk. It needs to happen. Okay, and it, honestly, like, let's stay in touch because you are a joy. Oh, and I want to put you in my pocket this was my absolute and go pleasure watch some real housewives please let me know if you're ever wondering where to start you just reach out you send me a message get my email and you just i'm here to to guide you to guide me you're gonna be my real housewife uh what do they oh, call your it bravo swamp not your bravo guide 
Yeah. Well, what and what do you think? Like, if they do a Real Housewives of Austin, Texas, should I try to put my name in the hat? Please do. They love an actress. You know, you mentioned Lisa Rinna. We have Kyle Richards, Kim Richards. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of actors. I also think it's ripe for a scripted interpretation. I know uh, there's been different things, but I, I think that world is so ripe for a good, juicy, like, scripted movie based on a group of women filming a show like this or something. I don't know. There's all sorts of stuff. Oh my God. And you need to write it. I would love to see you break into more screenplay writing. So you should do that. People would buy that from you. you. It would not be hard to see that you would be qualified to do that. Well, okay. I love you. And I hope you you have a great, great rest of your week. And I will let you know the next time I, I watch, I'll really try. I think I might try to watch the Teresa though. She seems like my people. Teresa's good. Teresa's on my show this week. Teresa Giudice. And she's, uh, Jersey's a good place to start because it's really juicy. And there's familial, Ital- you're Italian, you'll get the Italian drama. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, 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 it, it may actually be very cathartic for me or it may just trigger the shit out of me. I don't know. They remind me of like my aunts, <laughs> the Jersey women. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right, Danny, I will let you go. Thank but you, um, you, where can everybody find you and where can they buy uh, your book? I'm at Danny Pellegrino on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And then my book is called How Do I Unremember This? It's available wherever books are sold or the audiobook. And my podcast is called Everything Iconic uh, on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We did it. Thank you. Yay, Danny.